Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Just as societies can improve a lot, they can erode. And I'm seeing that erosion. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. My guest this week is Sir Paul Collier, Professor of Economics at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. As a development economist, Paul has spent his life tackling some of the thorniest and most important questions around. What's holding the world's poorest back? And what can be done to give them a route out of that poverty? His best-selling book, The Bottom Billion, published a decade ago, quickly became a must-read for anyone remotely interested in the area. More recently, however, Paul's focus has changed. His latest book, The Future of Capitalism, deals with what he thinks has gone wrong not in a failed African state, but here, in the West, where he thinks our political and economic system just isn't living up to the promises we make about it. I started by asking him why he has shifted his attention to issues closer to home. Well, partly because I'm pretty worried um, about what is happening um and um uh what's happening is um is new uh divisions um rifts in society um that uh, that when i was a kid weren't there um and as it happens in my personal life i sort of straddle these divides and so i'm very conscious of them. I see both sides of these new divides and they're vicious um, and I want to do something about them. Um, I think it also helps that having worked on societies which are really not functioning well at all, um, I've long realised that... um, our own societies, which have worked very well, um, they've not worked very well because of some magic in the air. Yeah? There, are, there are practical aspects of how the society is organised and the ideas in people's heads that make them function well. And so I can see um, those ideas eroding. Um, so just as the struggle in poor countries is a struggle uh, for change both in ideas and in policies that are built on ideas Um, so just as societies can improve a lot they can erode and I'm seeing that erosion 
And and just explain. Um, you sort of hinted at new divides. Explain yeah, what those, so as you see it, what those divides within, are within within our societies, the sort of advanced economies. There are there are two divides that have opened up the last forty years. One is spatial, and it's between booming agglomerations in Britain, London, and the South East, and uh, broken provincial cities. Um, so that's one divide, a spatial divide. Um, it's unusually stark in Britain, because in Britain it's shriveled to being a core periphery problem. London and the South East, pretty well anywhere in it, is doing fine, and pretty well anywhere outside it is not doing as well. Um, so that's a spatial rift. And the other is a new class rift defined on education. It's, the, it's those with a good college education um, on top of which is then built skill uh, versus those who had less education but invested in manual skills. And those manual skills are becoming less valuable. And so part of society, the metropolitan skilled, are on an up escalator. And part of the society, the provincial manual skilled, are on a down escalator. And that's been going on for 40 years. Um, but it's not been going on for 400 years. The 200 years until about 1980... Both these processes were going in reverse. The, the spatial differences were narrowing and the educational class differences were narrowing. And so the last 40 years is new, different and vicious. As it happens, I straddle these things, right? Yeah, I, was, I mean, I was about to say, explain, explain for listeners the way in which there's a, there's a real personal element to, to, yeah, the, so, to the book. Um, here I am, you know, if you want... Uh, metropolitan highly educated elite here mm -hmm. i am right yeah. um uh, but um i didn't grow up like that um i grew up in sheffield um if you want a broken city sheffield is actually emblematic of a broken city um a lot of people know because a lot of people have seen the film the wonderful moving film which describes it the full monty mm -hmm. it's just most people who've seen the full monty forget that it's sheffield but it is that was my relatives. Sheffield had been a steel town for 700 years. You know, there's a line in Chaucer, the, the knife came from Sheffield. Um, and yet it was destroyed in about five years in the 1980s. At a huge emotional cost. And I saw that, I lived that. Um, and then the education divide. As I say, I'm, you know, I'm educationally quite fancy now but both my professor at oxford is uh, yeah it's not bad on but, that front but, but um but both my parents left school when they were 12 years old i was first generation any education at all um and uh and so i've i've straddled both of these divides and indeed the book opens with a little photograph of myself and my cousin aged four we were born on the same day and initially we had very similar lives um and uh and for for reasons of of chance and circumstance um they started to diverge 
and then they just kept diverging big time because there were no buffers um, that that corrected for that. Um, just as there were no buffers uh, in, for the larger educational divide um, and there were no buffers for the spatial divide. And yet there are loads of practical policies which could heal those divides. It's just that we didn't do it. For 40 years, the metropolitan elite that ran the country just didn't bother. They peeled off into a separate identity. They exited shared identity with everybody else. And in the process, they exited that sense of obligation Mm. to others. And I mean... The I mean the book's got a very kind of economic-y title, the future of capitalism. But it's really a broad. I mean, as you're implying here, it's a broader argument than just um, narrow economics, um, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you know, you're talking about um, sort of nationhood and family and these other. Yeah. So there, there are there are three big organisations which determine our lives. Um, there are family. That's the vital organisation for um, bringing up the young and caring for the old. And when the state tries to replace the family, it generally makes an awful mess of it in those domains. So alongside the family, there's the firm. We all work for business organisations, whether public or private, um, and... The corporation is a, an entity that's been going for 2,000 years, and un, until the last 50, uh, corporations were defined by a sense of purpose. Um, but over the last 50 years, that's been completely revolutionized, with Milton Friedman saying the sole purpose of a firm is to make profit for its shareholders. So um, families have been... Um, have lost um, their centrality in the the modern ideological narrative. Um, It's all become the individual and the state. Um, And the same is true of of firms. They're just there to make a profit now. Um, But actually, um, both firms and families and ordinary individual people are naturally moral actors we we naturally designed to bear responsibility um this is where um it's not that i cease to be an economist it's that i think economics has taken a very much too narrow a view of what a human being is what a person is um economics came up with this mickey mouse creature economic man whose sole concern um, was consumption Um, and uh, that was fantastically handy for utilitarians but it's it's a complete travesty Um, so one of the areas I read into is, uh, is, is neurology social psychology and I work with people in those disciplines and they've they can't believe that economics has bought into this travesty of what a person is. Um, hardwired into, into us, 
alongside that hardwiring of of consumerism, if we didn't want to consume, we'd die out, we'd be dead because we wouldn't have had an urge to feed ourselves. So that's there. But alongside that, hardwired is a is a need to belong to a group. Because the people who didn't feel a need to belong to a group died out over the 400,000 years of human evolution. Um, and similarly, once you feel you belong to a group, um, we're hardwired to want the esteem of the group. For the same reason, the people who didn't want the esteem of the group were so untrustworthy that they got thrown out of it and died out. So mm -hmm. we've got three hardwired urges, one of which is consumption, but two of which are social. Belong to a group and get the esteem of the group. That's in the brain. But we're not just brains, we're minds. And minds are built out of those hardwired drives of the brain, but minds are built socially by the ideas that circulate in a group. And so first and foremost, we are social animals. The primary unit of economic analysis needs to shift from this autonomous individual to a sense of, of the group. This book, you don't, it's not a word you use a lot in it, but it struck me as a deeply conservative book with a small c in the sense that you um, talk about social, you know, the, the pillars of a society being the family and uh, group, group identity and a, whether that's a nation or whatever. Do, do you accept that characterization? Or? Uh, I mean, George Akloff describes it as the most revolutionary work in social science since Keynes, right? So if it's... If it's revolutionary, it's not conservative, right? Mm. Um, the um, um, It's about reciprocal obligations, building reciprocal obligations. And so if you mean by conservative, it's moving away from the idea that the only thing that matters is the individual and uh, personal achievement of the individual. Mm. If you want to call conservative to move away from that then so be it but you could equally well call it pretty radical to move away from that um, the philosophy of reciprocal obligations is not well identified on left-right spectrum mm -hmm. at all um, the the birth of reciprocal obligations in um, amongst families coming together to do things was uh, there was the cooperative movement that's the practical political expression of reciprocal obligations across large groups of families and the cooperative movement um, is conventionally thought of as being on the left um, but similarly um, uh, business uh, philanthropy um, is all about reciprocal obligations between a, a business and its workforce, a business and its local community, and business is usually thought of as somewhere on the right. So I think this, this trying to force my ideas onto a left-right spectrum mm -hmm. fundamentally doesn't work. Um, I've got... I mean, certainly the book has attracted a lot of attention from politicians. And 
it's pretty equally balanced between politicians on the left and politicians on the right. Um, so I, I don't like being pushed onto that spectrum. Mm. I don't belong on that spectrum. I have no political loyalties, allegiances, mm -hmm. um, because I don't think the political lineup um, uh, adequately characterizes uh, the issues that really matter to us. Let's talk then about. Um, you, you do describe a time when you thought capitalism was working better. Um, and what are the big differences between, differences between then and now in terms of, not in terms of the consequences of the, the divides and so on, but, you know, what, what caused those consequences? Um, well, I think the, um, as I said, the, the, the move in business away from a sense of purpose larger than profit uh, to a sense of profit is the purpose was catastrophic. Um, it doesn't even deliver good firm performance. So, and, and Britain is at the extreme end of um, of corporations being driven by profit because we're at the extreme end of um, of boards being pinioned to um, to fickle shareholders um, because um, we're at the extreme end of dispersion of ownership um, amongst financial institutions that have no um, shared identity with the company, with its purpose at all. And if they don't like the quarterly profits, they just sell. Um, Britain's very unusual. Until I did the book, I thought America was at the uh, extreme end. Yep. It isn't. Britain's mm. at the extreme end. Um, the best example of that is when um, Kraft, the big American conglomerate, wanted to move into chocolate. Um, there were two big American chocolate firms that would naturally have gone for, Mars uh, and Hershey, um, but knew it hadn't got a hope of getting them because each of those companies had blocking family shareholdings and the families made their money they didn't want an extra billion what they wanted was a a sense of future for their the corporation that their family had built over the generations they were immensely proud of that as part of their identity and they wanted to keep building that company with a sense of purpose larger than profit um and so what did Kraft go for it went for Cadbury and Cadbury was the archetypical company that had been founded by a family with a sense of purpose larger than profit. Mm -hmm. Cadbury was the archetypical Quaker company, which had magnificent past. Um, and Cadbury was destroyed. Because the, the city said, oh, you know, an extra 30 pence on the share price, great, sell. And it's disappeared as a company of purpose. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When I was reading um, your book, I was struck by a gap in some of your arguments and in, I think, British politics generally, which is that... Um, a lot of what you argue is not only a lot of what you argue is sort of point almost a point of consensus in Britain's political class so you cannot you know every think tank has its answer to the question what should we do about rebalancing the economy between north and south for instance um john lewis is held up as a as a great example of business by um conservatives and labor politicians um so you know quite a lot of people recognize this problem um why is there, you know, there's this funny gap, isn't there, where we are talking about the right stuff in your, in your, as you as you have it, but we we seem so so hopeless at, at solving those problems. Well, we're not doing anything about it. We just, you know, it, it's easy to talk. Um, actually, for most of the last forty years, we didn't even talk about mm. it. Right? Um, we've been in denial. Right? Um, so at last, we're talking about it. Um, but um, neither side has moved on to practical, pragmatic remedies because they're both trapped in ideologies. And this is the big change from the past. Um, uh, I'm, I, I think all ideologies are dangerous because the, the truth is um, the, wor- the world and any society is a sort of dynamic process which we can't predict in any with any degree of certainty and the the nature of the problems thrown up the anxieties keeps changing and so each time we're faced with new anxieties in new situation and we need to just work out the best thing that's likely to work in this context that's what pragmatism is it says look at the context try and work out what you can do best now don't think it'll work forever. Mm-hmm. Huh? Ideology thinks there's a Bible. Mm-hmm. Huh? This is true for all time. This is what we've got to do. And you see this both in the ideology of the right and the ideology of the left. And it's bloody dangerous. They try and um, fit the new anxieties 
into their old ideology when it comes to the solutions. And, uh, and that won't work. Um, most of the book is not about, oh dear, there's the new anxieties. Mm. That's the first sort of third of the book is, here are these new anxieties which have gone unaddressed for 40 years. The next two thirds of the book is, here's what we can actually do about them, pragmatic solutions that would work for now. Well, well, let's talk about those those pragmatic solutions then. So, what, what I mean, if you had sort of, you know, if you had a ten minute meeting with um, Theresa May or whoever the next prime minister is, and you had, you know, rank in terms of importance, you know, the the, the top proposals you'd have for that uh, yeah. policymaker. Yeah, sure. So, okay. So, which should we start with? Let's do the the class divide, mm-hmm. and um, the which is which is basically a challenge of not of transferring consumption. To the um, to the people on the down escalator, that was sort of New Labour's fantasy, that all that mattered was consumption. That is a travesty of again of what a human being is. A human being is an actor, and not a passive recipient of consumption. An actor who gets dignity from contributing, and so the challenge is to make the the poorer half of society more productive so that they earn more and contribute more and have a more a stronger sense of self-esteem so uh, just to just to sort of so, pin you down on that uh, yeah at the margin you would be pro policies that you would be willing to sacrifice for example you'd be willing to sacrifice gdp growth for an economy that gave people you know better more satisfying jobs or stable course, jobs or something. of course of yeah. course, of course. I'm not asking that like you're a lunatic for thinking that. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just, you know, trying of to course. clarify the, the trade-offs involved. Of course. Well, there may not be a trade-off, but yeah. of course we should do it. Mm-hmm. Of course. GDP isn't a god, mm-hmm. right? Um, GDP is one very crude measure of uh, how, how satisfying are people's lives, right? Mm. And it's clearly, you know, a completely inadequate measure. Um, so how do we raise the productivity of ordinary people? Well, we start very early um, because uh, we start basically when the kid is born um, because um, if things go wrong in childhood and in teenagehood, by the time the kid drops into the labour market, um, they're not very productive and there's not much that can be done. So we start, this is the concept of social maternalism. Hmm. We get rid of social paternalism, which has been a disaster. Social paternalism is the state will tell you what to do. The state will take on the obligations, it will strip obligations from firms and families, and it will just um, tell people what to do. Right? It will boss families around, it will regulate firms, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. This has proved disastrous. So all the way along the line, from birth, um, so for example... Um, preschool. Britain's preschool stuff is still a mess. There's a model out there which works very, very well, and that's France. They're called École Maternelle. Right? Everybody but everybody goes to free schools aged run for two and a half to five, and, um, and they work very well. One of our kids was in them. Brilliant. Right? was in one of the poorest towns in France. It was very good, and it was run by the state financed by the state out of taxation because everybody went there 
The poorest households also went there. So the children who need it most are part of it. We're not doing that. Our system is complex, expensive and doesn't work very well. Um, Once children go to school, um, they need, especially the people who don't have a good social network of contacts, they need mentors. And mentors don't mean people bossing them around, they mean mentors. Um, Similarly, the the teachers need a lot of autonomy um, in order to to do a good job. We've stripped people in their jobs of autonomy over the last 25 years. The role model there for autonomy of teachers is Finland. Um, And Finland regularly comes top or second in the world educational rankings. It's right up there with Singapore. And the principle in Finland is empowered teachers. Trust teachers. Don't boss them about. We've gone the opposite direction. Total tick box. Um, So that's social maternalism. And then when the child finally comes out of school, what you then need is massive efforts in vocational training. And Britain has basically dismantled its vocational training. Uh, at the same time, it's puffed up with over-expanded universities. Um, and we've got this ludicrous juxtaposition. We've got three of the top ten universities in the world, which is great for the cognitively most gifted and completely useless for the 60% of the population that shouldn't actually be at university, right? should be doing the non-cognitive route for skill. And there the role models. A good role model is Switzerland. 60% of the Swiss population goes into vocational training route. It's very prestigious. You can become chief executive of a Swiss bank through that route. Switzerland also has a top 10 university, so you can have the two together. You don't have to sacrifice the universities in order to do it. But vocational training in Switzerland is a um, four-year course. It's paid. Um, it's prestigious. And uh, it's run... Half of the costs are contributed by firms who therefore get very involved and make damn sure that when people come out, they're employable in those firms. So that's healing the educational divide. Mm. Then we've got the spatial divide. Um, And the spatial divide um, is just the same. It's not put the north of England on Benefit Street. It's that the provincial cities need and it's not even bring back the old industries that's the sort of trump fantasy yeah but you do need knowledge clusters in all the the major cities and the that's entirely feasible but it's a coordination problem a new knowledge firm wants to be with a cluster with other new knowledge firms and if there's no um coordination the the safest place to be is just the biggest city. And so we have no coordination in Britain, and so the biggest city is always London. The answer is always London. Go to London. Um, You can do things about that. Public policy can build um, new clusters in uh, provincial cities. Not everywhere, but every region needs a city with a knowledge cluster with a sense of 
that stuff is happening here. There is a future here if you're skilled, young, bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has to be built. Now it costs money. Yeah, um, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> and you get it by, uh, by taxing the, uh, the big agglomeration. The tragedy of Britain is that our metropolitan elite has actually come to believe that it deserves um, what it's earning. And it doesn't. Um, There's a very simple reason for that, is that um, agglomerations generate huge economic rents, economic rents of agglomeration, which makes every all the skilled people in that agglomeration more productive just by virtue of being together. Um, so they're all super productive. They think I'm earning and super productive because mm. I have my wonderful personal skill. And that's rubbish. You transfer them from London to Stoke and they wouldn't be as productive. Um, who should capture those uh, rents of those economic rents of agglomeration? Um, all of us. Because we've all put in the investment over the past couple of centuries investment in infrastructure and in um in the the regulatory the law the the, the framework of a of a of a of a functioning democracy with the rule of law all of these things that make london such a great place to be um who actually gets the rents for agglomeration the landowners in london the property owners in london um, and the highly skilled in London. Uh, and so, sorry, but you need to be taxed, right? Some of that productivity you deserve. Some of it the whole nation deserves. And, and, what, and what sort of tax is that? I mean, that's a, we're looking at sort of property taxes and wealth taxes rather we're, than as much. No, we're looking, at, we're looking at, um, at taxes on land. It's extraordinary that the appreciation in urban land values in London has, has, has gone so lightly taxed. Um, taxes on the appreciation of property values, same thing applies. Extraordinary how little of that's been captured by the state and redistributed. And taxes on the earnings of the highly skilled. And the tax rates need to be higher in London uh, than, in, than in provincial cities. Right? Um, so that's a that's a package. London is the new oil, if you like, and um, it's a very appropriate analogy because what was oil? It was economic rents. Mm-hmm. We captured the economic rents on oil, and we've not captured the economic rents on London. If there's one thing that, um, both on the geographical point and the, the class point, one thing that I think your argument stands out for, and would put off some people on the left and for different reasons put on some people on the right is you are to take the left point first um you know inequality is not uh in, in sort of strict economic terms is not something that crops up as much as you might expect in this book uh, and and you're you it's it's really you, you have a sort of your own understanding of fairness which is about kind of dessert and you know it's not simply a question of you know differences in incomes between here it's and there it's equality of dignity and uh, and 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 as you say, it's respect for dessert. The fact that people, if they've contributed, um, feel that they deserve something back, and so we should indeed recognise 
desert as a criterion in taxation. Um, um, you're quite right, I get pushback from uh, the ideologues on the left and the ideologues on the right. I'm very proud that um, uh, overall, future capitalism has been amazingly well received. Um, you know, New York Times, Book of the, This, and the Financial mm. Times, and so on. So that's why you're here. Uh, but <laughs> late to the um, party. But um, uh, I have united um, Dominic Lawson on the right and Paul Mason on the left in both hating it, and I think I'm really proud of that. <laughs> Well, um, beyond the policy proposals that you, you, know, you, you, you just you tell some of the stuff uh, just there, it seems to me as much as anything, this is also a book about a change of a change of mindset among not just policymakers but the sort of the, the winners of the of the story you're you're telling. Yeah. Um, um, so explain you know, if you would sort of had a room full of bankers and lawyers in London and you had five minutes with them, you know what what do you what are you trying to get into their heads that they don't un- that you think they don't understand at the moment yeah i i, I speak regularly to roomfuls <laughs> of such people so, yeah yeah and um and um they're human beings too they're not just driven by uh greed and profit and so uh i don't get much pushback from them mm-hmm. to be honest yeah they're not the ideologues right um the business community is most of the business community fully recognises they need a sense of purpose. Purpose beyond profit. A corporation, a firm, is defined by its purpose. Of course, it's got to be profitable, otherwise it wouldn't be sustainable or scalable. That's part of the genius of the capitalist system, right? Um, But I'm not getting pushback uh, from business. I'm just not. Um, The... um, uh, and the message that uh, the metropolitan successful peeled off from shared identity and that that has provoked mutinies from the people who feel abandoned, and that's widely recognised now. Um, the diagnosis is really um, very seldom challenged, mm. right? Um, some of the proposed solutions... People, some people find a bit painful, um, and uh, and that's that's fair enough. And the, and the solution is, you know, I'm a pragmatist, so I'm not saying you've got to do all these things to the letter. Therefore, a, de- a debate, adjustment, learn as you go. It, it, indeed, the the book is very careful to say we should feel our way with these policies, try them a little bit at a time, see how they work, and error correct. Right? So it's not an ideological set of solutions; it's a pragmatic analysis. And is that a lesson you learned from the developing world? Is that, you know, is that do you think that's applying those development economic skills to? My God, if anywhere's suffered from uh, ideological solutions, it's the developing world. Of course, pragmatism is a, is is essential. Uh, pragmatism and a sense of modesty in trying proposals out, recognizing that at best they're only provisional. And they have to be error corrected through a process of experience. Paul Collier, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Paul Collier on the future of capitalism. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.